We're going to read the Bible together now. We're reading Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. I'll just give you a moment to find that. So Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks, Esme. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I'm Joe and I serve as a student pastor here if we haven't met yet. Um, Now, over the past few weeks, our minds have been focused on the events in Afghanistan and the things that have been unfolding in Kabul. And as a Christian, I've been wondering what it must be like for Christians living in that place at this time. We've already been thinking about that and praying about that this morning, haven't we? It's a question that doesn't capture the attention of our news reporters, but it does capture the hearts of Christian people. What must it be like for our brothers and sisters in the Lord in Afghanistan at this time? Now, as Richard was praying, um, the number of Christians, as as he prayed, is actually very small, as you can imagine. Some organizations put it at between 0 and 0.1% of the population. It could be more than that, um, which is just not being reported. But regardless of the number, there's a small group of Christians there facing tremendous pressure and anxiety. Just think of some of the difficult decisions that need to be made by followers of Jesus. Should we try and leave the country with thousands of others? Or should we try and stay and do what we can to witness to the Lord Jesus? Can you imagine what it must be like to face that kind of decision with a small family, for example? One article I was reading this week has some quotes from church leaders living and ministering in Kabul. One family were in hiding in a small room, fearing for their lives. Another family were praying for finances because they couldn't access a bank and the ATM machines were all empty. One pastor said that the situation is like living in a storm. And I want you to imagine hearing these words in Philippians chapter 4, in the middle of that storm, chapter 4, 
verse 4, um, Paul, who wrote this letter, says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And the situation in Afghanistan, as in every situation, Paul's command for followers of Jesus is that they rejoice. Now, that might seem like a crazy thing to say until we remember that both Paul and this church in Philippi were also facing significant pressure and anxiety as they followed Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that the situation for this church in Philippi, who Paul is writing to, is a direct parallel with the situation in Afghanistan. It's very different in lots of ways. But what they do have in common is external pressure, which is causing real anxiety that may hinder them from following Jesus. Now, this anxiety is coming for at least two reasons for the Philippians. The first is that the Apostle Paul, um, the one who founded their church and who taught them about Jesus, is now in prison. That's causing them anxiety. Paul has been shut up because he couldn't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. And the church is concerned. They're also anxious because of their own situation in Philippi. Paul says that they're going through the same struggle that he himself had. This church is suffering persecution and opposition for following Jesus. It's a church under pressure, which could easily lead to fear and to anxiety and to a shrinking back from serving Jesus wholeheartedly. And that is why Paul is writing this letter. He wants his church to continue following Jesus in the midst of opposition for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Just flip back with me in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 27. We've, um, we've had it sort of mentioned a couple of times this morning. I think it's really helpful to see. Here are two really key verses in the letter of Philippians that will help us to understand our verses this morning. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Whatever happens, Paul says, whatever happens to Paul, to this church, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And that means striving together, shoulder to shoulder, speaking of Jesus so that other people might come to faith in him. Now, it's worth saying that if there is a life lived worthy of the gospel, then surely there's also a life lived that is unworthy of the gospel of Jesus. A bit like wearing clothes that don't quite fit you anymore. There's a life that is not fitting for someone who knows Jesus. And that's what we're going to be thinking about as we spend time in chapter 4 today. Paul wants to see lives well lived in service of Jesus. He wants to see this church living worthy of the gospel that they profess. Now, I think this helps us get our bearings because without that context, these verses can seem a little bit disjointed. You'll see in our Bibles um, in church that the heading for these verses, uh, as the editors have put in, is exhortations. That's like taking a section of the Gospels and writing story at the top. It tells us nothing really, does it, about these verses, other than the fact we've got a series of commands But I think the context that we've just been thinking about really helps us to understand how these verses and these commands fit together. These are Paul's commands to the church in Philippi in a context of immense pressure 
to help them live lives worthy of the gospel. Paul takes the glorious truths about Jesus Christ that we've been seeing in Philippians and he applies them to this situation for this church. So this morning um, is an opportunity, if you're a Christian, to reflect on whether we are living lives worthy of the gospel or unworthy of him. And it's an opportunity for you as well, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, to hear for yourself what it might mean to align yourself with him and begin to live your life for him. It really is a wonderful life that he calls us to together. So let's dive in. The first way this church can live worthy of the gospel is there in verses 6 and 7. In times of conflict, unite in the Lord. Now, Paul does something quite unusual in these verses. He goes from addressing the whole church to now addressing just two individuals in the church. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through. Let's read verses 2 and 3. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, sometimes very important posts will drop through the letterbox. Um, We know some people who've received invites to the Queen's garden party at Buckingham Palace. Incredible post to receive. For this church family in Philippi, a letter from the Apostle Paul, the one who first brought the gospel to them, was a big deal. They would have gathered around to hear it read with great excitement. And there in the room, eager to listen, is Euodia and Syntyche. Now we can imagine them listening with delight as Paul talked about his prayers for this church and his love for them and his witness to Jesus in prison. There might have been a bit of discomfort maybe in chapter 2 when Paul talked about considering others above yourself. Maybe they stole a little glance at one another at that point. But imagine the surprise when they hear the clear words of chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Paul is well aware of this conflict that is going on in this church in Philippi and he commands them directly to sort it out. Now, before we get to this issue, let's just think about these two women for a moment. The only information we have about Euodia and Syntyche is here in these verses. There's nothing else mentioned about them in the New Testament, but we're told all we need to know here, aren't we? The important thing to see is that they're not rebellious, false teachers stirring up trouble. Sometimes Paul calls out people like this in his letters, but no, these are godly, faithful, servant-hearted followers of Jesus. As Paul says in verse 3, they have contended side by side with Paul in the cause of the gospel. They are fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. They're the kind of women in a church family who would be leading Bible studies and serving on teams and teaching the Bible. But clearly something has gone wrong, hasn't it, between these two women. A conflict has arisen, but that's all we're told. We don't know what this conflict is. We don't know how long this conflict has been going on for. Is it a disagreement over church strategy? Is it a doctrinal difference? Who's at fault? Is Euodia the instigator of this or Syntyche? We just don't know. But the fact that Paul puts it into writing to the whole church suggests that this wasn't a small squabble, but something that was causing significant problems in this church. Perhaps people were taking sides, getting dragged into the situation, maybe a rift was starting to form. What we can be sure of is that this would have been taking focus 
and energy away from proclaiming the gospel in their city. And so without taking sides, without pointing fingers, Paul says to them, I urge you both to agree in the Lord. Now I want to unpack that phrase a little bit by putting it on the screen in a a newer translation. It it helps us, I think, to connect this verse with what we've been seeing in Philippians. Um, 2011 um, version of the NIV says this, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now this idea of um, one mind is something we saw back in chapter 2. Just have a look at chapter 2, verse 2 on the screen. Paul addresses the whole church there and he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do you see the same idea there? Like-minded, one mind. This is what Paul is talking about again in chapter 4. He wants this mindset that he's been talking about in Philippians to unite Euodia and Syntyche. Now, when we heard from chapter 2, we said that this unity of mind is not about reading the same books or sharing the same opinions or all shopping at Aldi. Um, It's something much deeper than that. It's having the same perspective towards life that puts Jesus Christ and his purposes above our own. It is a mindset characterized by other person-centered humility, just as Jesus lived his life for the sake of other people. Just let me read verse 3 of chapter 2 that comes just after this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's the kind of mindset he's calling for. Cracks appear in our unity when selfish ambition and vain conceit take the place of humility. It happens when we think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of others. And I think this gives us an insight into the kind of conflict that Euodia and Syntyche might be having in Philippi. In one way or another, they have lost or are losing the mindset of Christ, not united in the purpose of the gospel and not pursuing humility towards one another. One or both of them are presumably marked by selfish ambition or vain conceit and it's damaging their witness to the gospel. And so Paul's command here is to put Jesus Christ back at the center of their thinking, to let his humility characterize their mind towards one another and to live for a purpose greater than themselves, the purpose of serving Jesus and making him known. Now we just need to acknowledge for a moment that this is a hard thing to do. One writer I read this week said that to pursue biblical unity is a vulnerable, pride-swallowing endeavor. But that exactly is exactly the kind of life that Paul calls his people to, that Jesus calls his people to, a pride-swallowing life in the pattern of Jesus that enables us to lay aside our rights for the sake of the gospel. Euodia and Syntyche are two women who contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. And he's calling them again to be of one mind so that they can begin to contend again. His purpose goes beyond the two of them and beyond their quarrel. He wants them to unite in the Lord so that they can serve the Lord in this church family. And he also wants other people in the church to help. Did you notice that in verse 3? He asks Euodia and Syntyche to be of one mind. And then this mysterious character, his loyal yoke fellow, sounds like something you'd maybe find in Lord of the Rings, um, has a part to play as well. 
Now that um, title in verse 3 has lots of different inter- possible interpretations. I've read them all this week. Um, it might be that this is a, a proper name. Um, as you can see just in that note down in the footnote, we could translate it Loyal Serzigus. It could be that Paul is referring to Epaphroditus who brought this letter to Philippi. But if so, then why doesn't he just name him? The best guess in my view is that this is a, a faithful co-worker of Paul's in Philippi who is enlisted to help, who, wait, who they would have known and who Paul knows. And the fact that he's not named perhaps suggests that other co-workers in the gospel are also being encouraged to help. Maybe there's a wider group in view. Conflict between people in the church can easily be, be made worse, can't it, by um, other people. People stirring the pot, gossiping, adding fuel to the fire. But also, people can help in times of conflict by pointing to Jesus and not letting the issue rumble on and trying to reconcile the two people in conflict. This is what the loyal yoke fellow is called upon to do. Now, for some of us, um, this teaching is perhaps painful to hear. Maybe we've experienced deep divisions in church families. At the very least, I imagine we've heard about them, conflicts that have escalated and that have had ripple effects for years in, in churches. And I think this is a wake-up call because Euodia and Syntyche had served shoulder to shoulder with Paul. They'd been faithful to Jesus in the past, and yet the unity that once characterized them in this church has now been lost. We need to examine our own hearts in light of these verses because the temptation to selfish ambition and vain conceit lurks in the hearts of all of us. It has the power to cause division and disunity and disharmony And sadly, it can often be caused by issues that don't really matter. I was reading one author, um, Zach Eswin, recently, who talked about something he called carpet decisions in a church. Decisions that have little to do with biblical commands, things like paint color and text fonts and meeting times and ministry styles. And he writes, whether the carpet is this color or that should never divide a congregation or be used to hurt a member in Jesus' name. But How often do those kind of things divide churches? The fact that Paul has spent so long um, talking about Jesus in Philippians up to this point teaches us that it's only the gospel of Jesus, the news of our humble, suffering Savior. It's only that mindset that can unite us in humility. Are we letting his mind reign in our relationships? And are we working to unite with one another for a purpose that is greater than ourselves? This is Paul's first command to this church. In times of conflict, unite in the Lord. But as he goes on to outline a life worthy of the gospel, he turns now to the issue of anxiety. In this pressured church with the threat of opposition, Paul calls them to trust in the Lord. In times of anxiety, trust in the Lord. Now, if we were to look at this situation in Philippi, um, then we might think that this church would be marked by despair and discouragement and anxiety. Despair because of Paul's imprisonment, discouragement because of opposition to the gospel, anxiety because they feared for their own safety and their their perseverance as Christians. But in these few verses, um, a different set of qualities is supposed to mark out this church. Joy, gentleness, and peace. How is it that Paul can command them to share in these things, given their current situation? 
I remember a couple of years ago uh, making one of, of many parenting mistakes. It was that moment when we were trying to leave the house with toddlers and there were socks to put on and coats to get ready and teeth to clean and toilet trips to do. And we were finally ready to go out the door and Sophie was still upstairs, our eldest, um, as we waited by the door. And so I shouted up, Sophie, time to come down. And she shouted back, I can't. So my voice obviously took on a new urgency. Um, Sophie, come down now. And again she shouted, I can't. Now in that moment, I just assumed that she was being a disobedient toddler, marched upstairs to bring her down. And when I went into her room, I found her stuck behind the sofa, unable to move. <laughs> when she said she couldn't come, um, she really meant it. And I wonder, when we come to commands like these in verses 4 to 6, maybe we have that same kind of response. Paul commands joy and gentleness and peace. And we might feel like he's commanding something that is impossible for us to have. In our church family, we're facing a whole variety of difficult situations with health, family, jobs, children, marriages, friendships, finances, and much else besides. And here is Paul outlining a life worthy of the gospel and telling us that it's marked by joy and gentleness and peace. Now, it's good to remember in this situation that Paul is not commanding these things from a place of health, wealth, and prosperity. He's not sitting on a sun lounger, looking out on a beautiful beach somewhere and saying, rejoice in the Lord always. He's sitting in a prison cell, shackled to a prison guard with no human freedoms, wondering whether he'll be sentenced to death. He has every reason for despair, discouragement, and anxiety. And yet, if we were to say anything about Paul in this letter of Philippians, it's that he's marked with deep, overflowing joy. He's commanding something here that he himself has. And the key, I think, is to see that Paul is urging this church to look beyond their circumstances and beyond themselves and to take to heart the realities of the gospel. It's only the good news of Jesus that can bring joy and gentleness and peace in this pressured situation. This is not a call to escape from their circumstances, but to go through their circumstances knowing and trusting the Lord. So to start with, he tells them to rejoice. Let's read verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, sometimes commands have no power to bring about change. Like when you're feeling down and someone says to you, cheer up. If anything, that makes you feel worse, doesn't it? But you see that this command here is full of content and power. Because Paul doesn't just say rejoice always, but rejoice in the Lord. Those three words change everything about this verse. The Philippian believers are now united to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, like Paul, know the surpassing worth of Jesus. That in him we have peace with God and a righteousness that comes from him and a certain hope of a glorious future with him. Every person who has turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ is now defined by this new reality. We belong to the Lord. We are in the Lord. Now, the normal way to respond in times of despair and, in, and discouragement, I think, is to, is to turn inwards, isn't it, and to give way to fear. But Paul is urging this church to look outwards and let their relationship to the Lord define how they view their present troubles. But Paul focuses on another truth in verse 5, and this again forms the basis for his commands. Just look at verse 5 with me. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
I wonder what you think about when you hear that short sentence, the Lord is near. I think there's maybe a couple of things that we might have in our minds. Um, Many of us have been traveling around the country this summer along with the rest of the UK by the looks of it on the roads. And while you were on the road, you might have turned to people in the car or phoned up a family member who you were going to visit and said, I'm nearly there. Put the kettle on. I'm coming. And that's one way to take verse 5, I think. The Lord is nearly here. Jesus is coming soon, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 3. The Lord is near. But there's another way I think we could understand these words. Um, A bit like in this pulpit, it feels like I'm very near to anybody who uh, is unlucky enough to sit on these uh, two two sides over here. Um, Nearness in that case is about presence, uh, closeness. And I think that second sense is also in view because Paul goes on in verse 6 to urge the Philippians to pray to the Lord who hears their requests. The Lord hears them because he's near to them. And so with that in mind, just uh, with that truth in place in verse 5, let's think about the commands that are either side of of, uh, this sentence. First, let your gentleness be evident to all. This word is translated in different English translations as gentleness, graciousness, reasonableness, moderation, forbearance. It's a word applied to Jesus in the New Testament who is described as meek and gentle. It is a word applied to church leaders in 1 Timothy 3 who are not to be angry, but gentle. One commentator describes it as a humble, patient steadfastness. A gentle person is able to bear with others and face opponents with grace because they know that the Lord is near. They don't have to be the ones to right every wrong. God will do that. The opposite would be someone preoccupied with their own interests and who demands to exercise their personal rights, and who gets angry when those rights cannot be expressed. Humanly speaking, it would be perfectly normal for the Philippians to respond in those kind of ways when they face false accusations and unjust opposition. But even though that would be the natural response for us, it's not the response that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Are we known by gentleness? Will it be known in times of opposition? But Paul also commands prayerfulness. This is verses um, 6 and 7. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And the way to not be anxious about anything here in verse 6 is to pray about everything. And the result of that prayerful trust is there in verse 7, that the peace of God will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. So these two verses, don't be anxious, do pray, and the result will be peace. There's a comprehensiveness, isn't there, to Paul's command um, in this verse. In everything, by prayer and petition, With thanksgiving, present your request to God. Nothing comes outside the scope of this verse. No anxiety is outside of God's care and concern. He wants us to bring all our requests to the Lord. Again, Paul has modeled that throughout the letter of Philippians, a prayerful, thankful confidence in the Lord. You don't get the sense that he was overwhelmed by the pressure he was under because he, in all circumstances, had learned to lean on the Lord. And as we'll see next week, he'd learned to be content. 
I remember sitting in the Lancaster University Library a few years ago, and I, I saw a student working just across the way from me, um, and I, didn't, I was wanting a break for my work, so I just watched her for a few minutes, um, and I noticed that she'd do a couple of minutes' work, and then she'd pick up her phone and check for notifications, and then she'd do another 30 seconds or maybe 60 seconds' worth of work, and then she'd send a message, and this went on. Now, I imagine it went on for quite a while, but I, I don't know, because I needed to check my own phone for notifications. Um, <laughs> It's a reflex that I'm sure had, had developed for this student over a long time. And I thought of her when preparing this sermon because it got me thinking, what if Christians had that kind of reflex when it came to prayer? That we take every anxiety to God and we do so quickly. That we lean on him, especially when the pressure is on and when it's hard to follow Jesus. Now, I don't want to suggest for a moment that every anxiety we have comes because we aren't praying to God or trusting in him. Some of us are struggling with social anxiety, clinical anxiety. Um, in many cases, professional help is something we'll need to seek after. But that doesn't take away from the fact that some of our anxiety, and often a great deal of our anxiety, is caused because we're shouldering the burden ourselves rather than leaning on the almighty arms of the Lord. As the Philippians learn to pray in all circumstances, in the midst of pressure, the peace of God, verse 7, will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the city of Philippi um, was a Roman colony at this time when Paul is writing, so it was guarded by a garrison of soldiers. Their job was to keep enemies out of the city. Paul takes that image and he applies it to these Christians and says that there's a defense that is more powerful for you as believers in Jesus than that Roman garrison. As they learn to trust in the Lord in prayer, they will be guarded and hemmed in by his peace. Those anxious thoughts like unwanted enemies will be held back by the peace of God. And the extraordinary thing about this peace is that it comes at times when it feels impossible I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 7 when he says this peace of God transcends all understanding. We normally experience peace when things are going well and when life is easy and when we're not facing too much pressure. But the peace of God can be experienced in times we least expect it in the most impossible of circumstances because the peace doesn't come from our circumstances but from God. Paul, for example, in prison, facing death, guarded by God's peace. The Philippians, under pressure, facing opposition, guarded by God's peace. It's a peace from God, and it's a peace that comes through Jesus Christ. We see that at the end of verse 7. Their minds and hearts will be guarded in Christ Jesus. Now, I read this week that nearly 40% of the adult population in America are engaged in some sort of weekly meditation or breathwork exercises, 40%. The wellness industry worldwide is worth over three trillion pounds. And if nothing else, this suggests that people are searching for a sense of peace. But this peace is often self-directed and self-focused. A Christian, however, is someone who is learning to place all their weight on the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the focus away from themselves and onto him. And it is that person, weak as they may seem, who will know a peace from God through Jesus that transcends all understanding. For the Philippian church, facing pressure, tempted to despair, 
This is one way they can live life worthy of the gospel, not turning inwards, but turning outwards to God and trusting in him. This is how they will have strength to persevere side by side for the cause of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose them. Now, as we come to the last uh, two verses of our passage, we're going to see the final way that the Philippians can live worthy of the gospel. Paul has addressed the conflict in Philippi, he's addressed their anxieties, and he now broadens it out and urges them to think and act in ways consistent with with the good news of Jesus. At all times, live for the Lord. In these last two verses, Paul wants the Philippians to ask themselves uh, two questions. What are they filling their minds with? And what examples are they following? Two questions that parents ask about their children. What is my child filling their mind with? Is it just funny cat videos on YouTube? And what examples is my child following? What is their peer group like? Am I as a parent setting them a good example? Paul wants the church to be thinking these things through as a whole church. Look at verse 8 with me, and let's read, let's read verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. List here of um, six qualities, six virtues that Paul commends. And they're summed up by those two words that we see towards the end of verse 8. These are excellent and praiseworthy things. But this isn't just about um, thinking rightly. You know, he, he does want them to, to dwell on what is excellent. We see that, think about these things at the end of verse 8. Fill their minds with what is good. But it's not just about thinking rightly. It's also about living rightly. He's going to go and talk about that in verse 9. And we've been seeing it throughout the letter that our minds will drive our behavior. For example, as they dwell on what is true, then their lives will be more and more shaped by the truth. As they dwell on what is pure, then they will become more pure themselves. Now, you might be wondering, why is Paul uh, talking about that here at this point in the letter? What has this got to do with living lives worthy of the gospel? Well, one of the problems facing the Philippian church uh, that we see in the letter is that there, were, there was a different way of thinking and there were different examples um, in, the, in the air that they were, they were breathing. We saw this in chapter 3, verse 18, that some people are living as enemies of the cross of Christ and their minds, verse 19, are set on earthly things. It is very possible to fill our minds with the opposite of verse 8, isn't it? With things that are false and ignoble and wrong and impure and vulgar and deplorable. But the mind of the follower of Jesus, a citizen of heaven, should now be filled with a different set of qualities. Now, one writer called Nicholas Carr, who's written a book about how we think, um, says that in our hyper-connected, internet-driven age, we're living life in the shallows. It's a helpful phrase, I think, to capture how we usually take in information. We flit around in the shallows, jumping from one thing to the next. It's like paddling rather than deep diving. It's like snacking rather than sitting down for a a proper meal. And even if we might not feel the effects of snacking in the short term, over time it takes its toll. What we dwell on has an effect on how we think and has an effect on how we live. And we're being wired all the time by what we're thinking about. Paul says, think 
about these things in verse 8. Now, as I've reflected on verse 8, I've, I've tried to work out, you know, what, what will it look like to obey Paul's command in verse 8, to do that individually and to do that as a church family? And I wonder if rather than thinking about a set of ideas here, we, we might instead fix our minds firstly on a person. I've been drawn to think about one who is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, the one who is excellent and praiseworthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him, as Paul said, is of surpassing value. And so I wonder whether filling our minds with the things of verse 8 will firstly involve filling our minds with thoughts of him. Speaking about Jesus so that other people's minds are drawn to him. What are we filling our minds with? And is it the person of Jesus Christ? Secondly, verse 9, what examples are we following? Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of God will be with you. Now, Paul gives to this Philippian church uh, not just a body of teaching to listen to, but also a way of life. It's his words and his ways that set the pattern for following Jesus. Again, uh, it would have been easy for the Philippians to look around and look for other examples to follow other than Paul, maybe less embarrassing examples than Paul, who's currently sitting in prison. People who weren't going through so much suffering for following Jesus, more impressive people perhaps. But the example of Paul is an example worth imitating because he lives his life patterned on his saviour Jesus, someone who is filling his mind with Jesus, who had the mindset of Christ, who could even say that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is Paul and people like him the kind of people we have as our examples, not the people we read about in glossy magazines with all the riches and rewards of this life, but people who have their minds set on Jesus? And as this church lives in line with Paul's pattern, then there's another promise in verse 9, similar to verse 7. I wonder if you noticed that. That the God of peace will be with them. A follower of Jesus doesn't just know this thing called peace that floats around. They truly know the God of peace. The God who will shelter them under his gracious care. I know that for some of you listening today, um, here online, um, you don't yet know the God of peace that we've been talking about, and you aren't yet living a life centered on the Lord Jesus. And if that's you, then let me urge you to begin that life today. I hope you've seen that a life following Jesus, although not easy, is the life that we were made to live, to take refuge under the God of peace, to rejoice in him in every circumstance, to contend, to speak about Jesus in every situation in life. Will you come to Jesus and receive his offer of salvation and life? And if you have done that and you are following Jesus this morning, then have you heard the call afresh to live your life worthy of him? These commands the Philippian church under pressure are not just exhortations, but Paul's laser-sharp application in their specific situation. They need to keep persevering with united, joyful, gentle, prayerful trust in the Lord so that they can strive side by side for the cause of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose them. 
These are words for a church under pressure to enable them to live out the gospel and to keep speaking about Jesus. Words that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan will need in an incredibly anxious situation. Words that the 340 million persecuted believers around the world need as they seek to live lives worthy of Jesus. And words that we need too as a group of Christ people living in Lancaster, eager to live lives worthy of the Lord. We might not be facing the kind of pressure that some churches are across the world. We're not, for example, fearing for our lives or concerned about our safety as a church. We're free to meet. We're on the whole free to speak and live for Jesus. But what if in 5, 10, 20 years' time that all starts to change? What if the pressure becomes more intense and the fear becomes more real? Will we live united in joyful, gentle, prayerful trust in the Lord? Will we begin that life now? And will we, like Paul and like the Philippians and like countless Christians around the world, continue to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? I'm going to give you a moment now to reflect on what we've um, heard this morning. Maybe you want to just think about one of the commands particularly that's, that struck you um, in these verses. And then I'll lead, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in every situation we have reasons to rejoice because we are known and loved by you. We thank you that in every circumstance we can present our requests to you with thanksgiving. Please help us, Father, to take hold of your salvation and to live lives worthy of the gospel we profess. Please help us in this church family Please help churches in places of real pressure to continue to stand side by side for the eternal worthwhile cause of the gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.